Thank you, David. And uh, thank you to the ministers of music who brought me into the presence of the Lord and made me want to see Jesus very much this morning. And thank you all for being here and uh, for the invitation to come. I appreciate that very much. And I'm looking forward to today. I just spent an hour with your president, which was a highlight for me. And he told me I'd like you. And uh, I do so far. I hope I'm not disappointed by the time we're done. I'd like to pray and ask God to come and help me now before we begin. Oh, Father in heaven, we want to see Jesus, we want to love Jesus, we want to welcome Jesus, and we want to live in the power that He supplies so that in everything He gets the glory. I pray that You'd help me now to be a good steward of these next moments of these men and women time. I pray that I would be faithful to Your truth revealed in Your Word. I pray that the issue of manhood and womanhood would grip us and enable us to live out our femininity or masculinity in biblically and culturally appropriate ways that are good for children and good for this world and good for your glory. Draw near now and give us an attentive heart, I pray. Guard us from the evil one who would distract us. And grant us to be obedient to what you say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The theme of the times that we're together are manhood and womanhood, sort of from a biblical perspective. Today, I'm not going to do an extended exposition, but rather what I would call a biblically based cultural critique. And then tonight at the dormitory, I'll try to get a reading on where we are, where you are, what you want to talk about and uh, take it a step further probably into the church and the roles that men and women should and shouldn't play. And uh, then Friday, when we're back together here, I will try to build on what we said and talk about marriage and the implications of uh, the word for marriage. So if you have a Bible and you want to go with me to the biblical foundation for the cultural critique, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to just look briefly at maybe four verses in different places here in the first five chapters of Genesis. I told my people when I came to Bethlehem, my favorite sound in the ministry is the rustle of pages when I announce the text. So I was glad to hear some of that. Now, I, I don't blame you if you don't bring a Bible to chapel. I don't know whether I would have when I was in your case, but I see lots of them and that makes me happy. These are all familiar verses and I'm going to make brief comments about each one and then we'll go into what I would called my cultural critique. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. My first biblical foundation is that everyone in this room, believer or unbeliever, male or female, is created in the image of God. And that is an absolutely stunning thing to say. That you are so much like God that you, more than any other creature on the face of the earth, in fact, not more than, but there's an absolute qualitative difference, you only, of all the kinds of creatures on the face of the earth, can relate to God personally forever and ever. You have been created so much like Him that you may have a relationship with Him, male and female. The kind of equality that is 
surpassing in value beyond all other kinds of equality is that male and female are created in the image of God to enjoy a relationship with him forever. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father, it says in Matthew 13. Male and female, king and queen, prince and princess, so much glory upon your head, male and female, that you will be tempted to bow down and worship one another. That's verse number one. Chapter five. Verses 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man. When they were created. Have you ever wondered whether it is a simple cultural artifact that, at least in America and in some other cultures, women generally take the man's name when they get married? You ever wonder where that come from? Does that have any biblical warrant? Did you see verse 2? Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. And he named them Adam. That's the Hebrew word. In fact, lest you make a mistake, if you read on into verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son. So Adam is the man's name. He's becoming a father of a son. It is also the generic name given to male and female. He created the male and female, and he named them Adam. Now, here's one of the implications I would draw out of that. He puts the man and the woman before him equally in his image, glorious, and he contemplates what his purpose is for them in this world, and he takes the man's name and he writes it as a banner over the relationship. As though they live in a house... And when anybody comes to that house to call them to account for how they use their money or how they treat their children or how they carry on the dynamics of the relationship, he puts over the name of that house, John Piper, for Noel and John. John Piper. This is John Piper who lives in this house. And John Piper lives in this house, which means I'm going to John Piper now to call him to account for the beauty of this relationship. If she's not happy, I'm going to John. If those kids aren't behaving, I'm going to John. If they're misspending their money, I'm going to John. That's the name over this house. To me, what that says first is not right. John's got some rights here, but burden and responsibility. Now, third verse to show you where I get that implication, lest you think I'm over-interpreting 5.2. Let's go to chapter 3. You all know the story of the fall. The, the tempter comes to the woman. Thus, as it were, spiting the man, ignoring him, and zeroing in on the woman. And the man, if we had time, I would give further exegetical support for this, but I believe is there. I could show that from a couple of key verses. And he is allowing Satan to 
zero in on the woman. He keeps his mouth shut. That's a fault on his part, I believe, not to intervene and uh, take up with the tempter along with the woman and interact. She also agrees and begins to talk. And they both fall together. And it is a, a progressive fall because I believe the dynamics of interaction with the tempter was already a problem. And then when the fruit is eaten, it comes to a clear, decisive, disobedient act. Verse 9, chapter 3. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Why do you do that? The woman was the first one to interact with Satan. The woman was the one who said, it's going to be good to make us wise. The man came in and joined her and they ate. And when God comes to call them to account, he comes to the man first. And he says, Adam, where are you? And then he goes to the woman. She is a morally accountable agent in the image of God and will give a reckoning. And then he goes to the tempter. In that order. And that's because they were created male and female and he named them man. Fourth text to look at. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So man was created there first. And God assesses the situation according to his design and plan and says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable or fit for him. But what I want to draw out of that verse is that word making a partner suitable. Meaning that God didn't make two beings precisely the same and then flip a coin and say, this one will be head and this one will be submissive. He didn't do it that way. He made a man, he put him in the garden, he gave him the moral framework of the garden, he began to bring the animals to him to name. There was none found suitable, fit, different and yet complementary. And God designed woman perfectly as a complement for man. Equal in dignity, equal in value, equally in the image of God, but different by design, as the new book of your president rightly says on the title. Different by design. So here's my foundation for the cultural critique. Not only are you all, male and female, created in the image of God, but your differentness as male and female is rooted not in arbitrary cultural developments, but in God's created order and design. Okay, that's my platform on which I'm going to stand as we move towards a cultural assessment of what's happening in America today. I used to come at this. I've been thinking about these things for about 18 years or so now and writing about them and debating them on different campuses and so on. And uh, I used to pose the questions primarily up front in terms of role. So is it appropriate that there be a distinction in marriage between one who has a leadership role and one who has a, uh, an endorsing role of that leadership? 
headship and submission. I used to, and then I would go to the church and I would pose the question, uh, is it appropriate for men to assume the unique role of spiritual leadership at the level of the eldership and the pastorate? And is it inappropriate for women to assume that spiritual leadership responsibility role at the level of eldership? And I would talk in terms of, of roles and I would attack it from that way. And there's plenty in the Bible to go at from that. But I, I don't do that anymore. I start where I'm starting this morning now for various reasons. One of the reasons is this. When I start at the level of who are you by your male and female personhood beneath role, before you ever get to the issue of role, do you have a masculine or feminine personhood, identity? Because what this enables me to do then is go outside church and home and ask the larger cultural questions about uh, business practices and women in the military and all kinds of other things, heterosexuality and homosexuality, that relate to who we are as persons everywhere, not just in the little sphere where the Bible addresses eldership and where the Bible addresses husbands and headship. There's some people who are content to just take these few texts and say, well, the Bible addresses the home and the Bible addresses the church. We will make some strong pronouncements there. We don't know what is supposed to happen in the world. We don't know whether women should bear arms and be in the front lines and in the trenches with men. We, we just don't know anything about that sort of issue. Whereas if you pose the question where I'm starting this morning, at the level of creation, at the level of personhood and identity and suitableness for one another, You've got to address those issues. You can't just conveniently say, well, we Christians only have a revealed word about home and church, and so we only talk about that. So that's one of my main reasons. I have felt inauthentic in not being able to respond to the wider cultural issues on manhood and womanhood when I only talk about roles at home and the church. As far as I can tell both in the church and outside the church, with some exceptions, there is a tremendous neglect of that question of personhood, nature, and identity beneath the roles. And I wonder why that is. Let me take you back about 20, 20 years now. It's exactly 20 years. In 1975, Paul Jewett, one of my professors at Fuller Seminary, who is dead now, wrote probably the groundbreaking book on opening this whole issue of manhood and womanhood in the evangelical church. The book was called Male, Man is Male and Female, 1975. He said some things in it which it, it still is, in my judgment, one of the best books. I think it's wrong, but I think it's profoundly insightful in the way it poses the question. He said... Sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depth. It conditions every facet of one's life as a person. Very few people are saying that today. Because the implications of that are stunning. It means you cannot ignore manhood and womanhood anywhere if you want to be deep and responsible in the way you talk about that. You can't just say competency is the only thing that matters. If that sentence is true, and that's written by an evangelical feminist who disagrees with most of what I'm going to say this week, 
Here is the most surprising thing he goes on to say. He says, all human activity reflects a qualitative distinction which is sexual in nature. But in my opinion, such an observation offers no clue to the ultimate meaning of that distinction between male and female. It may be that we shall never know what that distinction ultimately means. In other words, in his book, he finished by saying, I do not know the difference between male and female. And, and, and you say, well, of course you know the genetic plumbing. That, that is absolutely superficial compared to the issue I'm addressing here. Of Is there a dimension of male and female personhood and nature? And he says... There is. Everything is conditioned by our sexuality, he says. And then he says, and we do not know what it is. Twenty years ago, that concession, confession of agnosticism towards manhood and womanhood was made, and I believe it has governed almost all thinking about these issues in the last 20 years among those who write the leading books. Now today, here we are, in the mid-90s. And it is more so today than ever, outside and inside the church, that human personhood as male and female is simply considered a negligible reality. And all that matters is function and competency. Let me give you an example from outside. Uh, there's a social historian named uh, Jerry Muller, teaches at the Catholic University of America, and uh, mid-1993, he wrote uh, these words about the academic women's studies that are probably 500 of them around the country, major women's studies program in sexual, secular universities. He said, the influence of lesbianism is perhaps the prime reason for an increasing focus on gender defined as the social and cultural construction of sexual identity, the key assumption behind such work is that while men and women are biologically differentiated, the characteristic qualities of maleness and femaleness are largely artifacts of culture and arbitrarily imposed cultural constructions at that. <clears throat> the emphasis on the relative importance of gender as opposed to sex, then, is intended to challenge the assumption that differences between men and women are either natural or immutable, unchangeable. Now, let me try to put those in my own words. Today, there are two kinds of words being used. There's gender language and there's sex language. If you're reading the kind of rarefied stuff that's being written by feminists, secular feminists, as well, I'll show you in a minute, evangelical feminists. The word gender is coming to stand for the cultural dimension of sexuality. That is, you are feminine by virtue of a cultural definition of femininity and by virtue of socialization, and you call that gender. Sex is what you are by virtue of your biological givens. This over here, they say, is where you talk about manhood and womanhood and personhood, and the differences are not significant 
They are culturally determined. They are not even unchangeable. You can have an operation and you can go through socialization so that if you want to become a man, women, you can do it. And men, if you want to become a woman, you can do it. Socially and even physically, it can be done up to a point. And it's a remarkable thing how the word gender is, in fact, beginning to be used to minimize nature and to minimize the givens of social, uh, of uh, created personhood. Let me illustrate that from, from two books, probably the, the two most influential evangelical feminist books in the last several years, one 1993. Um, one is called Gender and Grace, Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen. The other is called, she edited this one as well, After Eden, Facing the Challenge of Gender Reconciliation. It is not incidental that the titles are gender titles, not manhood, womanhood, or sex titles. Because the word gender more and more is carrying the implication of it's all culturally designed, it's all socially determined, it is not rooted in nature or in creation. And that's a very, very different orientation than I'm coming to you with this morning. My conviction is that these differences between manhood and womanhood are profound because God created them and God is good and God loves you. And therefore, they are created for your good to deny them, to consider them as negligible is bad for you, bad for your children, bad for your culture, bad for your church, bad for the world and bad for the glory of God. A lot is at stake in whether we consider who we are as male and female persons as negligible or not. That's my conviction as I come to you this morning. I really believe that feminists outside and inside the church who minimize nature-based personal differences, who say that the role distinctions that exist in the world are not rooted in creation, are in fact aiding and abetting a collapse of the understanding of manhood and womanhood in our culture that is absolutely devastating, resulting in all kinds of violence, all kinds of depression, all kinds of depravity, not intending it, but I believe unwittingly endorsing and advancing it. I think James Dobson is exactly right when he says feminist resistance to making manhood and womanhood significant in behavior and role determination contributes to some of the most painful social, spiritual issues of our day. In the feminist side of the church, the effort to speak in terms of being sex blind and gender neutral is not healing the church. It's meant to be healing. Because everybody knows sin has absolutely corrupted men and women. So that culturally around the world, men use their strength to belittle and to abuse women. Look in the, the cultures of certain parts of Africa where I visited. And the women have to take care of the children. They go to the fields. They break their back. They have to make the meals. What do the men do? They sit around and talk. It's a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing. 
It's a distortion of privilege. You look in some of the ways, and I hesitate to mean certain other cultures just because it could, it could sound so um, abusive in the other direction. But we all know that the reason for the rise of feminism are legitimate abuses all over the world and in our own culture. My point is to make the leveling out of natural distinctions, the solution to that abuse is counterproductive and aids and abets other abuses. Now, they don't agree with me on that, and you may not either, but that's the conviction that I come with. Christian feminists, when they encourage being sex blind and gender leveling, are not helping matters. Let me give you illustrations of that. Gretchen Gabeline Hull uh, wrote one of the most used books from the evangelical feminist side. She says in that book, it's called Equal to Serve, biblical feminists lovingly ask the Christian community to abandon artificial role-playing and to be sex-blind in assessing each individual's qualifications for ministry. You know what's so maddening about that sentence? I want, I want to alert you. If I had one other, if, if we were meeting three times in chapel this week instead of uh, two and one in the evening, I would include a message on the, the, the politicization of language in the debate. Do you, are you aware today of how politicized language is in almost every area of debate and how language is caressed and molded so as to, in the stating of a view, to make it impossible to take the other view. It was in that sentence. I don't know if you heard it, but let me read it again. Biblical feminists lovingly ask the Christian community to abandon artificial role-playing and to be sex-blind in assessing each individual's qualification for ministry. What has she done? She's made it impossible for me to disagree with her without being artificial. You see that? You, you, the reason you are in college, folks, is to learn to hear that and to be discerning listeners. That's the reason you're being educated. To learn to say... No, wait a minute, Ms. Hall. Wait a minute. What you've done there is set up two alternatives and excluded a middle by your language. You have said, I call you all to stop engaging in artificial role-paying and be sex-blind. And if you're not a thinking person, you'll say, well, obviously I don't want to be an artificial person, so I will be sex-blind. There are only two alternatives. She set it up in a very politically tricky way. I really get angry when people use language like that. Can you tell? Here, here's, the, here's the response to that. Is, Ms. Hall, can you, could you say this? What I'm really calling the church to do is abandon not artificial role-playing, but mature, biblically-based, informed assumption of appropriate roles on the basis of sexuality. I, I called you to abandon that and be sex-blind. Because that is what she means. That is what she means. She has no place for letting a biblically informed sexuality have any place in determining whether a woman be an elder or not. She will not have it. 
It's not artificial. The word artificial is not an operative word. It is a political word to win the debate. Here's another illustration of exactly the same thing. Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen. The Bible's main thrust is toward the leveling, the leveling, not the maintenance of birth-based status differences. There it is. There's the, there's the word. There's the political word. Status. You cannot win in an argument like this. You can't win unless you have a judge who is incredibly insightful. Because she's got two alternatives now. Either we're going to be gender leveling or we're going to defend status differences. Well, who wants to defend status differences? I'm not into status. I'm into serving my wife. I'm I'm into putting a towel around me and getting down and washing her feet, earning money. Getting up at night if I hear a noise instead of saying, you go see what the noise is. <laughs> Leadership to me is a weight and a burden and a responsibility for her good to enhance her. I'm not into status. Neither is the Bible. He who would be great. He who, who would be great. Elders who would be great. Husbands who would be great. Let them become the servants of all. But she set it up so that I've only got that alternative if I'm going to disagree with her. Are you going to defend status differences or are you going to be like the Bible and be leveling? And I just humbly say to her, there is a third way. It's called, in logic, it's called the exclusion of the middle. It's, it's a debate tactic. If, you, if any of you are in debate and you are immoral, I always had to struggle at Wheaton College where I went with the debaters because they learned these tactics to win when they didn't believe what they were saying. Because you were given this side. I don't believe that side. Well, win anyway, because that's your job. Ooh, that's awful. The only argument I want to win is one on the side of truth. And if I win for error, I'm an immoral person. I don't know if you teach debate like that here. I lost my train of thought there. I don't know where I was going. Um, the excluded middle. It's a tactic. The excluded middle. So you say, what do you want to be? A status defender or gender leveling? And, and simple people who don't go to master's college and learn how to think say, oh, well, we obviously don't want to be status people, so she must be right. And your job in culture, your job as salt and light is to be discerning readers and listeners so the churches you fan out to you're not swept away by every wind that blows this way and that way. You can listen to political messages Oh, I'm tempted to get off on political message here, but we got to keep on track here. My point is that the relentless pressure coming from the feminist side of evangelicalism and outside evangelicalism towards being sex blind and being gender leveling is not good for you. Not good for your marriages, not good for your churches, not good for your soul. Not good for your struggles with homosexuality. I'm sure there are people in this room who struggle with them. Let me give you some illustrations of the wider cultural gender leveling. Um, I've never spoken in California on this. And uh, it's ironic that two of my illustrations come from California. There are all kinds of jokes where I come from about California, you know, and you know them all, so I'm not even going to tell you one of them. 
You remember the story of Lisa Olson, the uh, reporter for the Boston Herald, who on the basis of non-discrimination walked into the the uh, New England Patriots locker room amid all these half-dressed and not-dressed athletes as a sports reporter, and there was a big suit and a big hubbub, and, and it was defended to the death on the basis of non-discrimination. You have equal rights for male and female, and manness and womanness do not count. Of course she can go in there. The men get to go in there to interview them right afterwards. And she went in. She, the hubbub was so great she moved to Australia, like that book, No Good, Terrible, Horrible, Bad Day. She came back after writing, and they wrote a book, where I come from, Minneapolis, University of Minnesota, two sociologists wrote a book about her experience, defending her right to walk into a locker room with the other male reporters while the other guys are not dressed, and and, uh, because gender leveling, sex blind, let's be sex blind. Here's another illustration. I got a letter... I don't even know where uh, Vacaville is in California, or if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, but I got a letter, a letter in December 9, 1989, from a prison chaplain who'd read my little book on what's the difference between male and female, and he was pleading with help and insight because uh, in his prison, where he was a chaplain, class action suits had forced women to be put on the guard duty in the male facility so that they were doing the actual searches. I've been searched that way. It's a humiliating thing. I've been put in jail for pro-life stuff. And the, the searches they do are absolutely horribly, because uh, they think you can hide a razor blade anywhere, and other places, and, uh, and women are doing these searches and walking up and down, supervising the toilets and everything. And there's this big hubbub, I guess there was back in 1989, I don't know what's happening today, about the fact that it is a class action suit based on non-discrimination, sex blind, gender leveling. If men can have those guard jobs, so can women. And he was asking me for help. What in the world could he do and how could he respond? Here's a third illustration. In Minneapolis, and, uh, in Minneapolis is a very liberal city. I have my church right downtown, five blocks from the Metrodome, and here I am, this conservative, right in the middle of this, this incredibly liberal city. We have a domestic partners bill now. It just sailed right through the city council without a hitch, meaning that uh, same-sex couples who work for the city can have uh, leaves for children if they adopt children, have leaves for medical, I mean, same medical benefits. And so, in other words, treating homosexual couples and lesbian couples on the same level legally and for benefits as though they were, were married. Now, there is no law in any state in America that permits same-sex marriages legally. But there are all kinds of laws that are giving those couples the same benefits legally that you get for marriage, all on the basis of being sex-blind and gender-leveling. In fact, I was blown away in 1993 by the newspaper, the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, which reported that there may be as high as 10,000 children adopted by lesbian couples through artificial insemination. Not adopted, but given birth to. Uh, I, I hope that's an inflated number. I have no idea whether that's correct or not. I know that in 1980, since 1987, the public school district that my son Benjamin went to and graduated from last year has taught parenting classes for homosexual and lesbian couples for the last five years, the last seven years. 
all on the basis of, let's be gender blind, let's be sex leveling. See, now the, the evangelical feminists, and there may be some in this room uh, hearing me, they, they're real angry by this point because they're saying, we don't believe what you're saying there. And I know that. So, okay, I know that that's true. I'm just saying that I believe that the relentless pressure in the church from those two sentences that I just read and hundreds like them to be sex blind and gender leveling helps all that along and doesn't help us know how to discerningly respond to it. I think that'll be more clear as we... Ooh, we're almost done. We won't do too much more. Um, I'll skip over the Save on Drug Company in uh, California. Oh, I'm tempted to talk about that one, but that's... Um, increasingly, the issue is one of believing that homosexuality and lesbianism are the only ways to affirm equality. It's just amazing. I, I, could, I could give you friends of mine who I went to seminary with who are now teaching biblical studies in secular universities who were evangelical to the core, loved the Bible, stood for strong biblical principles, and I've watched them step by step move towards the endorsing of women's ordination into the pastorate and the next step into the endorsing of homosexuality. And they, they just cry foul when I make that domino connection, but I do believe that it is, it is true, that that's what, in fact, the logic leads to. Let me close by posing the question that to me is one of the most important questions for you to reflect on these matters as we move forward together this, this week. Um, if you choose to be a, a gender-leveling, sex-blind person, and you say the Bible is a sex-blind book and it, increase, or it encourages us to be sex-blind and gender-leveling in our determination of roles in the home and the church and society, then you are going to create a situation in which it's very hard to rear children in a healthy way. Here's the question I want you all to ask for yourself now as we close. What will you say to your 10-year-old daughter or 10-year-old son who says, Daddy, this is my son, Daddy, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman. And the little girl, Mommy, what does it mean to be a to grow up to be a woman and not a man? Now the last phrase, not a man. To grow up to be a man and not a woman is the operative key phrase. Because if you stop and say, What does it mean to be a man? you might, like most feminists do say, it means to be uh, mature sensitive, loving, intelligent, articulate, discerning, wise. In other words, they're defining the generalities of mature personhood and ignoring what the kid asked. The kid said, no, no, I mean, what makes me different from Mary? What, what should I grow up to be different? Or, or is there anything? Now, you, you must ask yourself that question right now because my guess is you are a generation where your parents did not have an answer to that question. If they had been interviewed by the newspaper and say, what's, what's the difference? Not, we're not talking plumbing here. We're not talking capacity to bear a child or nurse a child or have a low voice or have hair on your face. 
that stuff is not what we're asking about. We're asking when you help your child grow, you help your son grow from age zero to age 18 and become man, what are you helping him become different from the daughter that you have that you're trying to help become different from the son? What is it? And most of your parents probably would not have been able to articulate. Maybe, maybe they had good answers built in from their parents and, and they did a good job. But you might be at the level where you, you grew up in a very confusing home. And that's my concern, is that if you don't get this straight, if you don't have some conception of personhood for maleness and personhood for femaleness, what are you going to say? And even if you don't get married and you stay single all your life, you're going to have tremendous opportunities to influence people. And, and you need an answer. So I'll try to talk about that a little bit tonight when we get together in the dorm. And I know many of you can't come. Um, but I'll talk a little bit about that and anything else you want to talk about. And then we'll go into marriage implications on Friday. Let's bow for, well, I think you're to stand for a closing prayer. Well, Father in heaven, I, I long so much for you to be the sieve for what I've said so that only what is true and helpful will, will fall through the sieve into the hearts of these young men and women. Lord, would you build their burden, their zeal to know their own identity as male or female and to live it out in a beautiful, complementary relationship with the opposite sex. Oh, Father, I pray that this would not be viewed as a light thing or a simple thing when, in fact, the very replication in the world of Christ in His church are at stake and the glory of the Savior are ultimately at stake. So I ask your blessing on them as they think about these things. And as we gather tonight and on Friday, continue to teach, Lord, and build into our lives and into our minds a biblical vision for what it means to be male and female to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.